Hello and welcome to another episode of the 94 Feet Report MBA podcast. I am one of your hosts, as always, Eric Spiropoulos. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros MBA. Last week, we did the Atlantic Division. We're continuing our division preview series, what Corbin likes to call our training camp for, you know, the team's opening up training camp in a couple of weeks. We're doing our training camp for the podcast, starting, um, continuing with the Northwest Division. Corbin, how are you doing today? Hey, you know, I'm doing good. I'm really just blessed to live in a world where uh, Dwight Howard is still in the top 100 uh, NBA players. <laughs> yes, you know? that was Gotta pretty interesting. And, and a lot of people thought he was uh, underrated at, at 69, which is a very fitting ranking for Dwight Howard. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I'm more on the surprise he made it list than, yeah. oh, he should be better. I mean, solid stats, but, you know, I digress. <laughs> yeah, oh, we'll, we'll, we can spend plenty of Dwight Howard time when we cover the uh, Southeast Division Um later on but let's go with the northwest division we're just going to keep it alphabetical to keep things easier starting off with the denver nuggets first team so this denver nuggets team is really interesting one of my favorite teams to watch in the league i think obviously you know all these favorite league pass ranking articles that are going to come out in the next couple of weeks their nuggets are going to almost guaranteed be in the top five for everybody because they're just extremely um, explosive offensively that you know unique players like Nikola Jokic Jamal Murray can take over a game um, they've got a lot of interesting players they added um, Isaiah Thomas so let's just let's just recap their offseason I already mentioned you know they re-signed Jokic and Barton which were the two kind of really significant moves for this team but then you know on the secondary level drafting Michael Porter Jr. at 14 is a, a play that might not actually impact them this season. He might miss the entire year. He might come back in January. He might come back, you know, November or something like that. We don't really know at this point. Um, but that's definitely a move for the future. Again, adding another piece to their young core, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and then the more immediate move that they made was adding Isaiah Thomas on a veteran's minimum contract. Um, so let's some storylines that I've identified for this Nuggets team. I think the first one is health. And really, especially with Paul Millsap, who was obviously their, their really marquee free agent signing last year, signed to a three-year, I think it was like $90 million deal. Um, his next year is a team option, so he could be gone after this year. Or if he plays really well, they might pick up the team option. I, I doubt it because it's going to be a $30 million team option. They probably want to decline that and, and re-sign him for something a little bit lower. Um, but Millsap missed more than half of last season. And he was signed to not only obviously help them on the defensive end, but be that perfect fit against alongside Nikola Jokic on the offensive end as well as, as a solid playmaker. He can score in the post. Um, he's started to shoot threes as well. I think he shot like 34 35% last year or, or for the past couple of years. So his offensive game is a perfect fit next to Jokic. And then on the defensive end, I mean, one of the most versatile defenders, you know, in, in the past decade, pretty much, and one of the best defenders in the past decade, honestly. Um, you know, him missing more than half of last season, but this team still winning 46 games without him for the most part. Even when he came back with that wrist injury, he was nowhere near his his, his full normal self. So, you know, if you get a, a th- more Millsap, you maybe get a full season of him. Maybe he plays 60, 70 um, games. That's going to be a huge difference for, for the Nuggets team that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. And then additionally on the health-wise, Gary Harris, I think, missed 15 or so games last year. Isaiah Thomas obviously struggled with injuries last year. Um, Michael Porter Jr., as I mentioned, if he plays, how healthy is he? If he doesn't play, that's, you know, that could hurt them a little bit. Um, or if he plays, surprisingly, he could be a surprise contributor off the bench um, or fill in if other people get injured. And that could be a, a bonus contribution, kind of boosting the Nuggets up a little bit. So health, I think, is one of the key storylines for this team that's not really being talked about enough because they need to stay healthy in the Western Conference. Oh, I definitely agree. This, especially if you mentioned Paul Millsap, he definitely unlocks a whole other dimension for them. Not only in the ability to space the floor with that three-point shot that he's rapidly improved at, but also a, a perfect complement to Nikola Jokic in the front court. And so for him to miss as many games as he did last season, obviously, was impactful. Also, we have to take into account that with the team they have now, I think with the addition of 
Isaiah Thomas and the internal development of Jamal Murray and Gary Harris that'll help out because we have to remember that Paul Millsap will be heading into I think or age thirty three, age thirty four season coming up. And so we can definitely expect a decline in play. Well, not definitely, but it, it's reasonable to expect a decline in play. However, with the roster that you have here, this team, the last two years actually, have only been out of the playoffs by a couple of games each time. You know when you play, they're going to come in pace. Nikola Jokic just dominant on all sides of the ball offensively. I, I'm really high on the Gary Hallis, Jamal Murray um, backcourt, even if Jamal Murray isn't exactly a, a quote-unquote point guard. He distributes the ball well enough, and I think that with Nikola Jokic as the offensive fulcrum, you don't even really need to have a traditional point guard. And I'm really high on the signing of Isaiah Thomas, again, just to boost that backcourt, or the not the backcourt, to boost the backup offense off the bench. Now, Will Barton probably moving into that small forward spot with the departure of Wilson Chandler. So if Isaiah can even get you know a little bit more healthy, he went through a tumultuous season last year, kind of trying, I think, rushing his, his return in Cleveland, you know, coming back early, not really meshing well with the team there, then getting sent to L.A., playing good over there, but then getting injured again. So if he really takes his time and comes back as close to 100% as he can with this hip injury, I think it's going to be a sneaky big boon for them. Just keeping with that pace, having a, a competent guard who was in the top five MVP race not even two seasons ago, kind of manning that second unit and just, you know, that, that familiarity with Coach Mike Malone and really just kind of going from there. Yeah, and and really for, for this team that has struggled with getting a back a quality backup point guard, you know, last yes. season Emmanuel Mudiay was, was just really bad. I mean, hit, I mean, really bad. He was just not contributing to winning. Um, they had Devin. They traded for Devin Harris uh, at the trade deadline. He was solid enough for them, but really, you know, solid but unspectacular. Isaiah Thomas, obviously, you know. He comes with a reputation. Maybe he's not going to be fully healthy. Will he accept a smaller role? You know, all indications are that he was made aware that he would not be starting, that this is Jamal Murray's starting spot, and he's just going to be a spark plug off the bench. But who knows? With Mike Malone almost guaranteed coaching for his job, maybe in, you know, in a close game he relies on the veteran Isaiah Thomas, who he's very familiar with from Sacramento, to close out a game over one of his young guys. Maybe it's not Murray. Maybe it's Harris. Maybe it is Murray. And, you know, that could also upset people too because this team's really young, and what I'll get to in a little bit later is still, you know, not only focusing on this year. Obviously, like you said, they missed the playoffs by one or two games over the past couple of years, so the pressure is on to make the playoffs this year. Um, but it's not only about this year for the young core and, and the team's development, really. Um, but, you know, adding Isaiah Thomas while also getting back more Paul Millsap this year, hopefully, is like two ends of my next storyline, which is can the defense improve? Because last year they were 26 defensively, and that simply is not going to cut it. They have been... I think they've been below, they've been 23rd or worse defensively for the past, I think, four or five seasons. Um, and, I mean, you go through this roster, and how many above average defenders can you name? Jamal Murray is a below average defender. Isaiah Thomas, definitely below average. Gary Harris has potential as a 3 and D kind of wing at shooting guard, but he hasn't been consistent enough. Malik Beasley's not going to really give you anything defensively. Will Barton, a lot of people kind of look at Will Barton and his game and say, oh man, this guy must be a pretty good defender. He's really inconsistent. Um, and of course, he's a little bit, you know, he lacks a little bit of size now that he's going to start at small forward to actually match up with a lot of the small forwards um, in the Western Conference and in the NBA in general. Nikola Jokic, I think his defense is, is, his defensive issues are, I think, overblown a little bit. Of, but of course, he's not really above average. He's not going to, you know, defend the rim. He's not going to be able to switch on the perimeter. Um, so you obviously have a pretty much liability at center for the most part, though I think his defense is a little bit underrated at this point. Paul Millsap, as I mentioned, very good defender, but Trey Lyles behind him is not going to really doing anything defensively. Mason Plumlee behind Jokic, 
he's he's going to play sparringly and he's not going to really do much defensively as well. So how many above average defenders are on this team? I mean, two. I, I mean, <laughs> it's really maybe three. Tory Craig, I think, can give you some energy defensively, but I mean, he's not going to be playing that much. He's, he might not even have a consistent role. So I mean, in their rotation, I think you could look at Gary Harris and Paul Millsap as two above average defenders and a couple of average at best defenders. And that's why you know you add a guy like Isaiah Thomas. You know, obviously more more Paul Millsap would help a bit, but they didn't add any good defenders in the offseason. Isaiah Thomas, as I mentioned, is, is really bad defensively, mainly due to his size. Um, I mean, with Millsap on the floor last year, the defense was 2.7 points per 100 possessions better, which, which is good. But Millsap can't make up for all of the liabilities around him. So, you know, mm-hmm. my view on their defense is that they need to be around 20th defensively because when you pair that kind of defense with a top three offense, which I think they'll have, or even a top five offense, you have a good enough recipe for about 50 wins. And, and it's pretty much what the Rockets did um, two seasons ago in, in the 16-17 season, Mike D'Antoni's first year with the team. They won 55 games. They had a top three offense. I think it was second. Um, and they had like the 18th ranked defense. I don't think the Nuggets would be that good defensively, but if they could be like the 21st, 22nd defense with a top three offense, I think that they can use that offense to win 50 games in the Western Conference, but they need to improve that defense. That's that's really what, what it comes down to. Oh, yeah. I mean, 46-36 and 36 was their record this previous season. They were 22nd in opponents' points per game at 108.5. Um, they were 6th offensively at 110 points a game. So they had a, they were 6th in offensive rating and about 25th in defensive rating. Well, not about. They were 25th. So, they, like you said, if they can boost that up just a little bit to, like you said, 22nd and then go another offensive rating, which they definitely can. I see more opportunity or more of a a ceiling for them to move up offensively than I do defensively. But that's fine because the way they play score you type of team. And with the personnel they have here, there's no exception. They're definitely going to be doing that because you're right. The only superb above average defender I really see here is Paul Millsap. And as I said, I think declining age, that really impacts you first and mostly on the, on the defensive end. Then offensive, you can lose a step there and still have more of an impact offensive, but defensively you lose a step laterally, you know, quick or less off the jump. It, it kind of gets you a lot more there. And you already mentioned all these other players. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not really there. Will Barton, I really think, is going to be abused at that small forward position because he's really a shooting guard. At six foot six, kind of light in frame, he's going to get posted up a lot. He's definitely going to at least try with some effort there. I, I, I don't really deny his effort, but by no means he's a good defender. And the same for the backcourt. Um, we already talked about Nicole Jokic. Yes, I think we talked about his defense so much, and not me and you, but the NBA community at large, so much about how bad it is that maybe we overrate how bad his defense is. But, I mean, it's not great. We we can all kind of agree on that. So I, the best bet for them is, is to just stay offensively and outscore and maybe hope for some internal development among, I would say, the guards because I see steals-wise, Jamal Murray's not bad. I mean, he's decent at it. Steals combined, Gary Harris has 1.8 per game. And then my fault, I was wrong. Paul Murray basically had to steal a game, um, which is the same as Paul Millsap and Will Barton. So you're not really getting much there, but just active and, and, and just running gun offensively is your best bet, in my opinion. Maybe you can climb another step or two in the defensive rating, but you know where, where your bread is buttered for Denver. Yeah, and it, and it, it appears that they're pretty set on that with you know the addition of IT and the fact that you know, they, they could have tried to get, I guess, a, a wing defender in the offseason, but maybe they viewed that, hey, like like we have Millsap, one guy can't make up for all the liabilities around here, so let's just, you know, be even better offensively. I mean, they were 
the sixth-ranked offense last year. So, as you said, there is potential. I think they can and will jump into the top five for sure. I think they could also – I think they have top three potential for sure um, if people stay healthy and, you know, with Isaiah Thomas. If, if Isaiah Thomas is back to anywhere close, like even if he's like 75% of where he was two seasons ago, that'll be huge for leading the bench units. They can stagger their starters to make up for their, you know, limited depth, especially on the wing. Um, so they can be really good offensively, and I think that they'll have to take a small – jump offensively to offset the, the, the really bad defense. Um, but like you said, I think that, you know, they're looking for getting more of Millsap and they're looking for internal development, mainly from Gary Harris, I think, because he's the one who's shown the defensive potential. I think he had he had a positive impact on their defense last year. I think it was, I think, three points or so per 100 possessions um, that he, the defense was better with him on the floor. He has shown the ability to playing, I wouldn't say lockdown defense, but above average defense from game to game um, at that shooting guard slash wing position. He's 6'4", so he's a little bit undersized to really guard small forwards. But yeah, last year, the defense was 3.1 points per 100 possessions better with Harris on the floor, ranked in the 78th percentile. So he can have an impact on the defense. Um, He he taking another step defensively will be huge as a 3 and D wing kind of on the shooting guard position. If Jamal Murray can improve a little bit, just give him more effort on a consistent basis, um, that could help him out a little bit. But really, you know, like you said, they have so many limitations. Even if they get good development from the backcourt and get more of Millsap, it's just not going to be enough to really improve their defensively. So really, the focus is improving offensively and then, you know, just surviving with with the defense, I guess. Yeah, I was I was actually about to ask you if Denver did not make any improvement at all defensively. Let's say Paul Millsap stays the same, if not loses a step. Jokic, Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, like you said, pretty solid. Millsap's wow, that was pretty good as far as his impact there. But let's say there wasn't a lot of internal development. Are they making the playoffs with the all with the addition of Isaiah Thomas and let's say development offensively? You know, they've been just outside on the bubble looking in the last two seasons, but without any movement at all defensively. Would they make Would they make that top eight? You know, I I think so, and and it's because I think I have a lot of faith in their offense and the fact that if you look at it last year, they were one game they they had a play in basically a play in game that last game of the season against the Timberwolves. If they won, they would have made the playoffs. So if we just look at that as the baseline, and you add Isaiah Thomas, who again can hurt the defense more than he can help the offense potentially. Um, and you get more Paul Millsap. I think that enough those you know those two factors of getting mainly getting Paul Millsap. If they if Millsap had played ten more games last year than he did, I think they would have made the playoffs because yeah. this is a guy that really can impact them on both ends of the floor and is a, is a perfect fit at that power forward position. So I'm looking at it as a 46 win baseline, basically a game out of the playoffs last year. It came down to the last, it came down to overtime on on game 82 to miss the playoffs. And if you add in Paul Millsap to that. And Isaiah Thomas, if he can, you know, give you more offensively than he takes away defensively, then you're looking at a team that can win 50 games and a team that can jump from 46 to maybe 50 wins, maybe 50 wins plus. And if they can stay healthy and capitalize on a couple injuries from other teams that might happen, I think they make the playoffs just by just by adding more Pamelsep, hopefully, and hopefully an Isaiah Thomas that gives them more than he takes away defensively. Yeah, I, I can definitely go with that. And, and as far as hiding him, I don't know if I trust Malone. I mean, defensively, he's okay from what from what what I've watched as as a coach there. But I don't expect him to hide him as well as other teams have. I guess you know, no coach is Brad Stevens there. Yeah. But by the same token, yeah, I do think that his offensive um, prowess and what he brings to that end will more than mitigate you know the more than occasional attacks he will get on the defensive end. Yeah. And so before we do over under predictions, I just want to also mention like the fact that this team is still really young. 
Uh, I mean, Jokic and Harris are both 23. Jamal Murray's 21. Michael Porter Jr., I think, is 19. So you're looking at the three best players, Jokic, Harris, and Murray, all being 23 or younger. And then Michael Porter Jr., who could jump into that, be their fourth best player, or if he hits his potential, he could be you know, their second or third, or maybe even first best player. I don't know. But they've added Michael Porter Jr. to a young core. And, and while obviously the expectations and the pressure is on Malone and the team to make the playoffs this year, it's not only about this year. I think that this team will be really good this year. I'm picking them to make the playoffs. Um, but really, the the fact that's most interesting about this Nuggets team is that they have the p- potential to be even better moving forward. I mean, it's not all about this year. They can honestly are one of those teams that can wait out the Warriors. And in, in, in saying that in three years that's from now... True. In three years from now, the Warriors are probably not going to be the Warriors, and the, the Nugget, this Nuggets team will have Jokic and Harris at 26, Murray at 24, Porter Jr. at like 23. So that's when they're going to hit their prime. So, you know, if you're a Nuggets fan, you've got to be really optimistic about this team's ability to make the playoffs this year, and then moving forward, they should be making the playoffs every year from this point on if the development continues and if they fill in a couple of pieces um, in each offseason. So I just wanted to point that out because, you know, everyone's like, oh, the Nuggets have to make the playoffs. And yes, Malone will probably be fired if he doesn't make the playoffs. In which case, that can change the <laughs> yeah. development of the players depending on which coach they bring in. But this is about the, this is about the present and the future. It's not like a team like the Rockets or the Thunder, where all their key guys are in their prime and kind of leaving their prime. This is a team that's en- starting to enter their prime as they start looking to make the playoffs. So, with that being said, over under is forty seven and a half. Uh, as you can probably tell from my optimism, I'm going over. High on them. I'm Just going a over. High on them, maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you'll see in this division preview. I'm pretty high on all these over-unders, and I think it's because the over-unders are pretty low, in my opinion, but for the Nuggets sure. themselves, listen, they won 46 last year, they get more of Paul Millsap, they get Isaiah Thomas hopefully helping off the bench, and the, just the continued development from those young guys I said that are still not even really in their prime, I think they can win 50 games, I think they can win you know, 50, 51 games, but I'm definitely going over on 47 and a half, considering the fact that they won 46 last year. Oh yeah, I'm going to go over, I'm actually going to pin a number on this, so I'm going to say even 50. 50 wins! That's what I'm going with, because... Yeah. They definitely could win a lot more, but there, there is some variance there with injury, and I think there are several players on this team that I'm a little worried about injury-wise that, A, if they suffer one, then it could be impactful to the team. Also, B, there's players that have this history. You already mentioned Isaiah Thomas. You already mentioned Paul Millsap. And, you know, in those cases, I do think that that would have an impact. However, with the internal development already as is and how young they are and the fact they were just outside at, at 46, and like you said, if they had Paul Millsap, they probably would have won 10 more games almost easy, I'm going to give him that extra four. A little conservative there. I'm going to give him 50 wins. I like that. I think I'll go with 50 wins as well. I don't want to jump the gun a little bit too much because of the, yeah. the defensive holding them back. But, um, yeah, 50 sounds right. And let's move on to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Okay, Just see. recapping their offseason, they re-signed Paul George and Jeremy Grant, which is you know big for them, especially with Paul George. Um, and then the additions-wise, they added Nerlens Noel, and they traded for Dennis Schroeder. And in that trade, they obviously traded away Carmelo Anthony. So, some storylines to watch. I think that the one of the big ones is the addition by subtraction when it comes to Carmelo. Um, you know, this guy is... is He's a very polarizing player, obviously, at this point. But last year, clearly was not working out. He was not fitting in his role. Um, he kind of stagnated that, you know, Paul George and Westbrook duo, um, jacking shots. And then on the defensive end, just, just a complete liability at this point in his career. I mean, the effort always wanes. And then now, physically, he really can't keep up at age, I think he's 33, turning 34 soon. So the, the addition by subtraction when it comes to Melo is something I'm going to watch. And not only how Melo plays in Houston with Harden and Paul, but really how this team looks and plays without Carmelo Anthony on their roster this year. 
Oh, yeah. I think that was definitely addition by subtraction. And I do not think it's a fault to Melo in how he fit in with the team. You know, by all accounts, he was a very good locker room presence. But as you said, with the age and his declining game, he really had an aberration of a of a bad shooting season. I think it will rebound just a bit there in Houston. Not only because of different types of shots, but just because he, he missed a, a, a large number. And I have to look up and pull up the stats on this. But he was not at all in most respects. I'm sure you have some information on him looking right now. But it, it was rough, just in general. I think his effective field goal percentage was 40 point, um, 47%, which was like, yes. But you saw in the just attacked him relentlessly. And they were actually better. You can always put to mind that Game 5 comeback with Melo on the bench and having Jeremy Grant there to unlock more potential versatility on that unit. So, you know, with, with Carmelo, he tried to fit. Um, as he said many times, you know, at the end of the season, I think he definitely did try to kind of slide to that third role. He didn't really make too much of, of a fuss about why he wasn't able to hold the ball as much as he was. You know, it just didn't work out. And so there definitely is an addition by subtraction there just because now you have a clear pecking order of Russell Westbrook, A, Paul George, A2, or Batman and Robin, however you put it. And, and, and it goes from there, and, and everyone kind of sets in place behind there. And Carmelo Anthony was just kind of, you know, a, 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 a kind of square in a hole type peg deal. And I don't, I don't even want to use that because I suck at that whole analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, last year, career-low PER, career-low true shooting percentage. There you go. I Thank mean, you. he was a negative in almost all the uh, advanced metrics, like box plus minus, value over replacement player. I mean, the shooting, yes, I think the shooting can bounce back, especially in Houston. I think he'll get better looks. I think that Paul and Harden are just more are just better passers in terms of getting guys open looks on a consistent basis. The question is, will Melo accept this role of just standing, you know, in the corner waiting for a three-point shot or really going to is he going to try and post up in the post and in the mid-range and, and just jack up the offense? But that's we're not going to dive into that cuz that's Houston Rockets preview. We're, we're waiting <laughs> that. It's another that's another podcast, but back to the the Thunder. I think that the other huge storyline um, or dynamic from the offseason is the Dennis Schroeder dynamic. Um, you know, a couple of questions, you know, related to him is, you know, is he going to buy into this bench role? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about his locker room issues and, you know, his teammates not really, you know, appreciating him as that point guard leader. And um, will Schroeder kind of buy into this smaller role? We'll see. What is his role going to be? I mean, how often is he going to play alongside Westbrook in a two-guard lineup? Um, if he does, you're going to need some shooters around them because both of them are obviously limited shooters, um, you know, limited cutters. So that could be – it's an interesting dynamic that I, I'd like to see. Um, quite often, but I want to see how it, how it does on both ends of the floor as well. Um, but really, you know, the backup point guard position has been a big hole for them in recent years. I know Raymond Felton was, oh was pretty God. solid. It was, Felton was solid for OKC last year, but, I mean, you still look back a couple of years, like the 16-17 season when Westbrook won MVP. I mean, he, he leaves the court. Yeah, <laughs> he leaves the court, and they just collapse. I mean, they would have a 10-point lead. He comes back, they're down by 15 almost. Like, it felt like that. So Raymond Felton is solid, and he's back. Um, which provides even more depth at the guard position. But really, Dennis Schroeder coming in, like the Isaiah Thomas signing for the Nuggets, just shoring up that backup point guard spot and being able to lead the offense, you know, capably. I'm not saying I'm going to buy all in on Dennis Schroeder, but he is a dynamic player that can lead the offense, especially against bench units. So I want to see if he buys into this role. And then how he does leading the bench offense, and then perhaps more importantly, how does he play alongside Russ, and how often does he play alongside Russ? Because that's a question that might define their season come playoff times when they have to experiment with different lineups and you know different dynamics and ex- ex- you know exploiting mismatches and small balls and everything like that. So the Schroeder dynamic is obviously, I think, a key storyline for the Thunder this season. Yeah, and I'm actually more higher on the Schroeder signing than most. 
I think that you, you already mentioned just the, the backcourt depth for OKC has just been horrible since, I want to say since Derek Fisher, but it's not like he was a, a net positive either. It's just been bad for, for a number of years, um, since maybe Eric Maynard. Um, oh, God. But, yeah, exactly, and that's like a, a blast from the Wayback Machine over there. But with Schroeder, I mean, not only do you bring youth, because Ray, Raymond Felton's good. He was more than serviceable. He played well. He's not really one to get – he settles the team down, not really much of a distributor in that sense. I was so many times where he was shooting so many ISO shots, but it kept the offense serviceable. And I think, and I think that was, was important. And you're bringing him back, so you have that continuity there. He's still a, a above-average player, and I'm, gl- I'm glad that he's back. He'll definitely help that backcourt at least – I mean, not help the backcourt, but help that bench unit you know, at least stay level with the opposition while Westbrook and Paul George are taking their breathers. However, with Schroeder, you know, he's coming off a career-high 19.4 points per game. You know, it was a rough campaign, but it was the first year that he was the number one offensive option. Um, his field goal and three-point percentages were down, but he did step up in other areas. I did At least the stat line I liked. He did dip three-point-wise to 29% from out there. Um, for his career, he's a 32% three-point shooter, which isn't great. But I don't think it's it's horrible. I mean, he'll he'll shoot them, and he's had three years before that where he shot at least thirty two percent or better from out there. Um, he shot thirty five percent in twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen, and then he shot thirty four percent just last year. Um, but also, one aspect of his game that's going to be great is isolation, especially in Billy Donovan's offensive sets. Um, you have two great isolation players in Paul George and Russell Westbrook. Um, last season, he averaged a point ninety three points per possession isolation plays and shot almost forty five percent on those. And even this past season, the top offensive option, he put um, 1.09 points per possession, which put him in the 90th percentile while shooting about 49% from out there. So that's great. He can definitely get there. He loves going off those high screens. Um, he'll have the freedom to do that and get his own shot. And this time, he'll have one of the best screeners in the game in Steven Adams, who will definitely crib some space for him to get him to his mid-range jump shot. And seeing him in the offseason here, he's definitely seemed to have worked on his three-point shot. It looks a lot more fluid. I think he's one of those players where... I mean, his shot looks okay. It's just he's a streaky shooter. That's kind of what he is. So playing off ball with Russ will be an adventure. But I definitely would like to see some closing units with him and Russ alongside Paul George, Jeremy Grant, and Steven Adams. I think that's a unit that gives you some versatility defensively as well as offensively and having more than a couple of players that could grace their own shot as well as players in Jeremy Grant and Steven Adams who play above the rim, set good screens, don't kill you on the defensive end. It's going to be nice. But I'm going to throw this back to you. I think the OKC season here and one of the main storylines really hinges on the return of a healthy Andre Roberson. That was literally my next storyline <laughs> bullet point right there. You read my mind. Um, yes, but before we get to Roberson, because I think that, like you said, you want to see more, you want to see a good amount of Rustin Schroeder. And I think that, you know, that's especially true when Roberson's not playing because he's expected to miss, I think the first month or two, maybe even three months of the season. So yeah. at that point, like you said, rolling out that lineup of Westbrook, and Schroeder and Paul George and Jeremy Grant Adams or maybe Patterson, you know, you know Noel. And there's a bunch of other options you can do there. But just rolling up those lineups will obviously help when they don't have Roberson, who, you know, would project to be their starting shooting guard when he's healthy. Um, and, again, like you said, this team is in, is in a good spot because, you know, Schroeder and Westbrook are, are below average defenders. You know, they're, 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 their effort is a little bit inconsistent. They gamble a little bit too much, you know. But the fact of the matter is that the, this OKC team has enough quality defenders around them to not really have to worry about them that much, especially with Roberson back. But Paul George, great defender. Adams is very solid as well. Jeremy Grant can maintain um, defensively. Patrick Patterson can as well if he's healthy. Last year he had that weird knee injury in the offseason and he didn't play anywhere close to where I thought he would. Um, 
We'll see what Nerland's Noel is. I know it's like an under-the-radar storyline, the Noel rebuild project, and, you know, how much does he really play? You know, they've got options to go small ball with Patrick Patterson or Granite Center in smaller lineups, so I'm not sure he's going to play that much. But when he does play, how does he look? You know, he took this minimum contract to kind of rebuild his value in OKC. Um, so I want, to, I want to keep my eye on that as well. But I do want to turn to Roberson's health and kind of where he when he comes back because let me throw this stat out to you. And I, I have – I think I've tweeted this stat out. I think I've said it on podcasts before. Uh-huh. But it's, it amazes me every time I read it out loud. The OKC defense was 11.7, 11.7 points <laughs> yep. per 100 possessions better with Roberson on the floor. That is insane. I mean, they only finished 10th defensively for the season, and everyone's like, oh, you know, you know they really weren't that good defensively. But when they had Roberson in, I think they were top five. And I'm going to try and um, look that up for sure. But, but why, yeah, you know, but... I mean, he's quietly one of their most important players this season. I mean, obviously the stars of Westbrook and George kind of carry you in the NBA, but you could argue that he's the third most important player on this team. Honestly, I'm not, I don't think it'd be crazy to say he's the second most important player. Obviously, I think Paul George is more important overall, but if someone were to say that, that Andre Roberson's health and getting a full all-NBA defensive level Andre Roberson for the season, for the second half of the season and the playoffs especially... You could argue that he's their third most important player. So when he comes back, you know, they have other offensive options now, especially with Schroeder, so they can do more lineups where they can have Robeson and Schroeder on the floor at the same time. Uh, maybe Robeson at small forward or power forward to get more shooting on the floor. But his health and just his ability to help out and, and you know, really handle this defense on the perimeter, him and Paul George and Adams, and there's so many quality defenders that when Robeson comes back, and if he comes back 100%, especially for the second half of the season in the playoffs, that is going to be such a key defining storyline of this OKC season. Oh, yes. I think as bad as Roberson is defensively or as much flack as he gets for that is how underrated or how really good he is defensively. I said offense. Yeah, that he was offensively. I thought I made sure I didn't get my words twisted there. But he really is just uh, – if you watch a game, and I tell people, as far as fans of just basketball in general, um, defense, if you think that Andre Roberson is by any over, over, I just watch him in, in a couple of games and just see the amount of movement he has to do where he goes from the top of the key down to close the lane in case of a drive, then popping back out to go and react to a jump shot or, 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 or you know, a, a play on the perimeter, locking down or, or doing his best to mitigate the top offensive wingmen in the NBA. So if it's a LeBron James, if it is a Kevin Durant, I mean, he swings basically from point guard almost power forward on the defensive end and his absence really impacted thunder you could tell because you already mentioned that stat that was just insane as far as how their rating jumped but also in the 11 games that thunder lost by at least 10 points robeson only played in three of them so it showed that most of the time you could say that the losses you could attribute the amount or the the difference or margin of loss to the impact or or lack thereof of andre robeson he, he just is, is really great as far as limiting opponent's space and containing shooters. And as much as you mentioned having Roberson and Schroeder on the floor, it's, it, and I don't think it really got enough run, but having Roberson and, and Paul George there, because Paul George is no slack on the defensive end either. I think putting him on the best defenders kind of limits his offensive impact just slightly just because of his legs and you know having to chase them around. But when you have Roberson there, you know, you put him on the main offensive threat, and then if this switch and Paul George gets on him, well, Paul George ain't no punk on that end either, so you're going to do just well. And offensively, I mean, I think that I've seen video where there's been rumors of him working on his shot 
um, just this offseason, just as much as he can, you know, with his injury. But even offensively, yeah, his shooting numbers were, you know, just about dreadful. I mean, he shot 22% from three, <laughs> shot 24% the year before that. I think the only year that he's cracked uh, 30 or, or more, 30% from the three was um, the 2015-2016 season, and that was on a, a limited number of attempts. But he did learn, you know, to be a, a, a lot smarter of a cutter. Um, definitely Billy Diamond's put in positions where he can attack off the short roll. Um, he's a really kind of underrated finisher at that department. Um, uh, you know, except when he's missing some layups, like he did that Philadelphia double overtime game. I remember that, but <laughs> that killed me, but I think his impact will be huge. And that's the storyline as you already mentioned, not just when he comes back, how healthy he'll be and the impact there, because his, you know, the injury he had that that's, that's bad, especially for the defensive end. And that's his strength. So not only how will he come back and impact there, will he be 100%, will he be 90%, 85%, where he's going to be there, but also how the Thunder will weather the storm in his absence. And I think they'll do just fine because, as you already mentioned, depending on how Nerlens Noel, Noel impacts them or if he gets really any minutes there at the bigs position, you still have Patrick Patterson, you still have Jeremy Grant. Steve Nams is there, Paul George is still there, Russell Westbrook, um, his defense I think is almost directly tied to his effort. So that's a thing. And Schroeder can also get there and at least be active on the defensive end. So they're still going to be, in my mind, a top 10 defensive team without Robert Roberson. And then when he comes back in, I think that'll kind of be the story there, or at least one of the stories of this season. Yeah, and the key thing is not to rush him because, as I said, it's more important that he's healthy for the second half of the season and especially the playoffs, not you know, not November and December. You know, getting him, allowing him to take his time, even if it takes till January, just let him take his time to rehab. You want him at 100% for the second half of the season so they can roll into the playoffs with a healthy and engaged and, and squad that's you know used to playing together. But when Kawhi Leonard's you know not healthy like he was last year, I think that before his injury last year, I think Robeson was the best wing perimeter defender in the league. Um, oh yes, and I agree. It's it's like not it shouldn't be underrated how important it is to add a player of that dynamic on the defensive end back to your lineup if he can get back to that level, hopefully. Um, but you know, just to finish up on that, like we were saying, they finished tenth defensively, but from the start of the season to January twenty seventh, which is when he got injured, they were the fifth defense. So they, wow. they have top five potential when they have Robeson there. Without him, I think yeah, I think you, like you said, they're going to hover anywhere from like eight to twelve, honestly. Um, that makes sense. You know, so we'll, we'll see how Schroeder is on that end of the floor. But um, I, I think that that's a key storyline. And I think that, you know, the pressure might be on Billy Donovan as well. Just a s- small thing to finish up. If they if they get eliminated in the first round again, um, that'll be three straight years eliminating the first round with Westbrook and, and George duo there and, and a bunch of other solid pieces. The, the pressure is on for a lot of coaches in this division, like we'll get to throughout all the other teams. But I think the pressure is on Billy Donovan. But when it comes to their over-under, which is, which is even 50, I'm going over. Um, they won 48 last year, and as I said before, I think that, you know, I like, I think both of us are higher on the Schroeder fit off the bench, um, and potentially alongside Russ than and many others are, and I think that the, the, the loss of Melo is, is, a, is a big addition. Um, so as a result of that, even though they're not going to have Robeson for probably the first month or two, maybe even three months, I think that losing Melo, adding Schroeder, maybe they can get something out of Noel, just the continuity from Paul George and Grant coming back, um, I think they're going to win over 50 games. I think it's probably going to be like 52 or 53, maybe even 54, if Roberson comes back healthy earlier than we expect. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go with the 53. I'm definitely taking the over as well. And I think in large part of that is just because of how bad the Thunder struggled in close games last year. Um, they finished 13 and 15 in games decided by five points or less. That That's rough. And then even worse, um, they had lost 10 games in which they had a lead of at least 10 points. And I think um, 
there was a, a, a late mid to late March loss to the Celtics that pretty much encapsulated that entire their entire struggles from you know closing games. I think they were up by like five or six with like less than a minute in the game. I can't really remember. And I think Russell missed a free throw. Car, um, Carmelo missed two free throws. The Celtics made clutch shot the clutch shot, and the Thunder lost the game that they had in the clutches of victory. It was I just watched that game and was shaking my head like wow, and it, that was just an example. But they were really bad in closing close games. So. If they can kind of shore that up a little bit, maybe be a little more um, productive, a little more efficient on offensive isolation plays. And again, I'm just going to give a little plug here to the 94 Feet Report, our off-season guides. You can check those out online at 94feetreport.com. But they had uh, Steve Zavala. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Please don't kill me there. Um, he put a, a stat as far as it was with the Thunder isolating where they – they ran isolation plays 10.5% of the time and ranked second in the NBA behind the Rockets. But they're only able to generate 0.82 points per possession on that, on 37.3% shooting. You compare it to the Rockets, who they were right behind, the Rockets averaged 1.12% points per possession, which led the NBA on a much better efficiency, 43.4% shooting. So it's almost a perfect storm of, you know, let's say not closing out well as far as time management, maybe a few de- key defensive laps, not really making the most of your offensive isolation plays, which you know – Come crunch time, that's what's going to happen. Billy Donovan's okay, in my opinion. I think I overrate him a little bit as far as his um, game management or game strategy. But you know it's going to be isolation come crunch time for first Russell Westbrook and then Paul George. And it really kind of determines how well they finish there and how well they close games out. But I think it was just aberration last year, in my opinion. They're going to have a lot more games where I think they're going to reach more of their ceiling. And that's why I'm giving the 53, definitely taking the over. Alrighty, let's move on to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Offseason was relatively uneventful. They drafted Josh Okoji, I think I'm pronouncing that right, and Keita Basie up. Um, there you go. <laughs> and they signed Anthony Tolliver, and just now, breaking news, even though everyone knew it was coming, Luol Deng has agreed to a one-year, $2.4 million deal with the Timberwolves. <laughs> my God, we all saw it coming a month ago. Um, oh, my goodness, three months ago. Let's go. <laughs> we saw that, we that a year like, ago. Yes, sir. Um, he signed with the Lakers. I knew he'd end up with tips. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's that's kind of a headlining of this whole Thibodeau reign since he got there two years ago. Um, but their, their key loss was uh, Nemanja Bialica, who they basically replaced with Anthony Tolliver, which I'll dive into a little bit more. I think it's a, it's a nice fit. Um, but really, storylines to watch. Um, the tension, there's been a lot of reports about the tension between Carl Anthony Towns and Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler and Andrew Wiggins. How is Tom Thibodeau factoring into all of this? How does Tom Thibodeau handle all of this? Obviously, with Butler uh, eligible to be a free agent next year, Wiggins is signed with a max contract that is, is close to being like not untradeable because we've seen Timothy Mozgov and everything else, Ryan Anderson get traded. But you know you'll have to really do some serious convincing to take some to get somebody to take on that Wiggins contract at this point of his career, which is the disappointment he showed last year. Um, and with Carl Anthony Towns obviously approaching that extension as well, um, I, I don't think he'll turn down the money. But I'm telling you, there's there's a lot of tensions here, and that's not what you want to hear from your coach and president of basketball operations and your star that's in his prime that can leave next year, as well as your two young building blocks. There seems to be a lot of tensions that could potentially hold this team back, and maybe that's why a lot of people are so pessimistic on the Timberwolves this year. Not only the over-under, which is 44.5, but just... People that you know, some of the playoff predictions that I've seen on Twitter um, over the past couple of weeks, a lot of them don't include the Timberwolves at all. Um, so that's a, a key storyline to watch. But maybe more importantly, on, on the actual court itself, is the defense kind of like the Nuggets? I mean, they were 22nd defensively last season, and 
I think they drafted and, and added some solid defenders. Tolliver, Okoji, and Bates Diop, apparently, you know, the, from what I've been hearing and, and reading on the 94 Foot Report draft guide, of course, um, is that they can project to be solid defenders on the wing, and Tolliver is a, is a better defender than Nemanja Bialica for sure. Um, but really, I think it kind of comes down to Carl Anthony Towns improving, kind of like Jokic, um, and maybe Wiggins being more consistent. Jimmy Butler is going to give you solid defense, but, you know, depending on what his offensive role is and his injuries, of course, and his getting up there in age, I think he's 29 um, this season. Obviously, he had that, I think it was a meniscus injury last year or some kind of knee injury, obviously not what you want to hear. Um, the minutes low could also slow some of, the, some of him down and maybe some of the other guys down as well. Um, I think that it's a little bit underrated that not having Jamal Crawford would help them a bit because Crawford's really bad defensively. And like I said, Tolliver is better than Bielitsa on that end of the floor. But if, if Anthony Towns and Wiggins don't really improve and become more, inconsist- more consistent, I think this team will continue to struggle defensively because Tom Thibodeau, again, I, I don't know why he doesn't really kind of want to adapt more modern defensive schemes, like at least switching a little bit. Some of the time, they've got the players to do it on a decent basis. Um, but his schemes kind of seem to be more and more outdated each year, and his players seem to be responding less and less to his schemes, which, again, this defense will hold back this Timberwolves team that had a really, really good elite, um, what was it, top four offense last year. So um, they had the fourth-ranked offense last year. So fourth-ranked offense to get you more wins than 47 and, and maybe not even making the playoffs, and it comes down to their defense. Oh, yeah. I think, and I'm looking at Tibbs just specifically, I think he's joining the, the growing trend of, of front office execs and coaches. Like, I don't want to mention Phil Jackson. I want to mention not because of the noise he made off the court as far as things he said, but just the way he built his team and the signings he made, as well as Stan Van Gundy and other more recent uh, coach GMs who were all the rage maybe five to ten years ago, but their, their, their style of player or the way that they – build their personnel is becoming increasingly outdated as this modern NBA moves along. And they're really so as far as catching that up. I mean, even Lou Adeng, who I think is still a fine player, even though he wasted away in LA, um, just not really targeting who you need. It's a shame because we put Phil, um, Tom Thibodeau as, as a defensive coach, but you're right with the improvements or lack thereof here. It, it, it doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be an improvement. I, I'm right there with you in the sense that I don't think it's going to happen. I think you're going to really hope for some, additional help with uh, Josh Akoji. Uh, I think I said that right. You just said it. And then uh, Kata Pete's Diop, if they get some time, because we also know that Tibbs is historically horrible at playing any rookies. I think only people who play off the bench, really, are Luau Deng and, and, and Derrick Rose, of course, which, although Derrick Rose had a really strong uh, playoff series, I mean, come on, he's clearly not the same player he was. And I've fulfilled my contractual obligation to mention Derrick Rose here. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so there we are with that. And you're right. There's just a lot of tension going here. And I think that is true. I'm also one of the people who think that, you know, if the Nuggets make the playoffs, which we talked about earlier, I do not think the Timberwolves will. Because there is so much internal angst that's there. You do have Andrew Wiggins and, you know, you just paid him that extension as, as a star player. I think we can clearly see that that is not going to be the case, in my opinion, whatsoever. You have... The dysfunction there with Jimmy Butler and, and Andrew Wiggins, as told, and Carl Anthony Towns has been mentioned. And you also have to worry about that that looming pending mask extension for Carl Anthony Towns. That's not only going to just completely kill the team's cash base next year in a summer that's going to have a lot of free agents there and a lot of teams with some cash, but it, it just, it's just going to be a tough situation regardless. And I think not even – I'm looking – you notice I'm looking more to next season than this season because I think this season is going to have ups and downs. I think there was some nice – uh, signings as far as rookies there. I do like C.J. Williams on the two-way contract just from seeing him play a lot in L.A. I know you're about to mention Anthony Tolliver, so I'm going to let you get there. But 
I don't know. It's a lot more of a bumpy ride here for a team that's going to have to really go above and beyond to really keep pace here in this tough Western Conference that only got tougher with LeBron James. Yeah, there's a lot of things to, to analyze for this team, and one of the key things is, like you said, the salary cap situation, and, and you know, the, not only is it like Andrew Wiggins' contract is eating them up, Towns' extension will obviously eat them up, Jeff Teague is making $19 million, um, I think it's next year, uh, is guaranteed as well, um, but guys like Georgie Diang, I mean, I think he is making $14 million per year, and when they signed him to that deal... I honestly didn't think it was that bad. I thought it was a little bit of an overpay, but ever since then, he's got less and less playing time and he's been less and less able to contribute to, to winning. And it, yeah. that contract has turned to be a, pretty much an albatross at this point. You know, and you got him through his 31-year-old season, too. Exactly. So it's not only that, you know, and obviously the Wiggins contract is huge because, you know, like we said, two years ago, we were like, oh, which is, this, which is the best young duo, Towns and Wiggins versus, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. It's no <laughs> longer right. that. It is Carl Anthony Towns. Andrew Wiggins now, to me, has cemented himself, in my opinion, just to be a, a role player. He can be a good one if he can, you know, play better and, you know, maybe add some additional playmaking, be more consistent defensively, become a better shooter. Um, but overall, I see, I see the star, you know, potential in terms of his physical abilities. But what I've seen from three seasons of him, three full seasons of Andrew Wiggins, in terms of how he plays the game, in terms of contributing to winning on both ends of the floor, I don't see him becoming a star. I think Carl Anthony Towns is going to be, is going to be as close to being a superstar already. And I think Wiggins projects moving forward as a solid role player um, at this point. And maybe I'm really low on him, but based on what we've seen, you know, he puts up flashy numbers. I think he was like 23 points per game two years ago. Um, but he doesn't really contribute to winning. Very little rebounding, very little passing, limited shooting, limited defense, or inconsistent yep. defense for that matter. I mean, he, all the advanced metrics show that he's not really contributing to actually wins in the standing. So, um, oh, you know, it, I'm about to give you a hot take here. Oh God, well, let me oh. hear it. <laughs> all right, so you know how we look at Andrew Wiggins. Now, I definitely do think he's a, a glorified role player in the sense of all offense, a uh, little else. But you know, a couple of years ago, the Timberwolves also had a, another kind of high flying wingman who. A little bit of, but he didn't really think he got traded before his uh, rookie contract was out. It's kind of bounced around the league a little bit. Definitely, you could say, was uh, drafted way too early. But I'm drawing some, some strong correlations between, and don't hate me here, Andrew Wiggins and Wesley Johnson, just minus the defense. You know, honestly, it's it's not terrible, though. It <laughs> Is really, it not it that really, crazy? It's really not, though. I mean, because you look at the – I mean – not, I'm not, I don't have the numbers compared yeah, together, but but yeah. I'm looking at Wiggins' numbers specifically, and they're just they're bad. I'm I'm looking specifically at the advanced metrics because that shows you a little bit more beyond the box score because he can put he can score. I mean, for his career, is averaging almost 20 points per game. Last year, he took a dip because of a smaller role. Um, but really, overall, like he's he can score. Obviously, we know that. But that's not all it is. I mean, he doesn't play much defense, doesn't pass, doesn't really rebound, doesn't really do anything defensively in terms of blocks and steals, especially on the wing. A limited shooter. I mean, so many things I could rattle off. I mean, he has been a negative in box plus minus and value over replacement player each of his four seasons of his career. Wow, it's actually four. It's not even three anymore. Oh, my God. Um, that's wow. even more concerning. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't want to rant on Wiggins, but just the fact that in basically two years ago, people still thought of him as a potential star. Now we're basically... I think all of us on NBA Twitter are kind of realizing that he's going to be a, a pretty much a role player moving forward. And on that contract, that's going to hurt them alongside contracts for Dang and, and Teague and, and Towns' extension. They're not going to really have the ability to add to this team. So that's why we're talking about what is this team's ability this season specifically because 
we could be talking this time next year, and Jimmy Butler could be on a different team, and po- honestly, probably will be on a different team this time come next I, year. I was I was just about to ask you that question because you, we, there's been talk already, but Jimmy Butler going to L.A., Jimmy Butler going to New York, you know, team with Kyrie, um, and all this internal talk between Carl and the Towns and what he's been saying about Minnesota. You know, kind of the right things, but more of we'll see, you know, putting the little um, Google eyes up on uh, Devin Booker when they were mentioning a uh, trade on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it was. You know, my thing is this, I, and this is how little confidence I have in Tibbs, but also if the situation should occur. And we all know what the rational, you know, just clear-cut answer would be. But what do you think the Timberwolves would do? In light of what Carl Anthony Towns has been saying and everything, if you had to either a re-sign um, Jimmy Butler and and just forego that max extension of Carl Anthony Towns, or b give that to him and let Jimmy Butler walk, and this is Tibbs, let's say you survive the season and this is you who has to make that decision, what do you think he's going to do? Because obviously, in my opinion, and everyone else, as far as like you know, not diehard Jimmy Butler fans, Carl Anthony Towns is is already a top five center. He's rising, um, younger, all this other stuff can go on and on as far as his efficiency rating and everything else. It's really just great. But your tips and Jim Butler's your guy. I mean, you just brought Luol Deng back. So, so what do you think is more likely to happen? There you go. Oh God. If he was, if he were to forego that Carl Anthony Towns extension in favor of Butler, then the owner or somebody has got to step in and just override that decision. Because I mean, First of all, I highly doubt Thibodeau will survive this year if they don't make the playoffs, and especially if this tension continues, in which case they can actually just choose Carl Anthony Towns and just focus on the future, maybe get a younger coach who's not going to be so steadfast in his ways and using traditional methods and traditional ways of playing guys and developing guys, um, which would probably be ideal for a guy like Wiggins, for, for Towns and everything like that, for the young guys that they just drafted this year. So in my opinion, really, if it comes down to it, you, you sign, you lock up Carl Anthony Towns because, like you said, I mean, he's, he's close to being a top 10 player already, uh, and you can lock him down for the foreseeable future. And, and honestly, Butler... I have concerns about Butler moving forward. I think that this year he'll be very good. I think the next year he can be good. But as he gets older, into his 30s, with his amount of playing time he's had over his career, especially playing with Thibodeau, and the injuries he's had, I think he could wear down a lot quicker than some of these other top-end talents. Like, I have more confidence in Paul George um, moving forward than I do with Jimmy Butler. Um, yeah, so that, that's the concern with Butler and, and re-signing him. And I think that, honestly, if he, if he says he's going to walk, you focus on Carl Anthony Towns, you focus hopefully on getting a new coach, a new regime in there, hopefully not a coach that also is president of basketball operations because, like you said, with Van Gundy, um, it just doesn't really seem to work anymore yeah. or, or ever, <laughs> for that most part. Um, so yeah, just, name the last one I did. <laughs> and really, just get a coach and get a GM. The, the two different jobs, they should never be done by the same person. And this is what you kind of get, this team that – a lot of people are down on and it doesn't really seem to project to have a, a, a really strong future or a really strong present. That could be good this year, but are they going to get better in the future? Are they going to get worse in the future? I mean, there's just so many aspects. But I do want to talk about one more thing on the on the court for this team oh, um, yeah. this season <laughs> is their three-point shooting. I mean, we talk about the bad defense, but last year they were dead last in three-pointers attempted per game, and they were 19th in three-point percentage. The percentage is, is fine. The, the, the attempts are just pitiful, really. Um, but this is really where Tal, uh, Anthony Tala comes in and, and why I really like the signing, because this guy shot 43.6% on threes, and he attempted 4.6 per game last season. I mean, just because of that shooting ability and the fact that he's better defensively than Nemanja Bielitsa was, he's going to get serious playing time um, for Tom Thibodeau. And honestly, I think that I would make the argument, and I think many others could as well, that he... 
it, putting him in the starting lineup at power forward makes more sense than having Taj Gibson there. I know Taj Gibson was very good for them last year, and Thibodeau is and Gibson is Ta- Thibodeau's guy. But Tolliver's shooting and his capable defense makes him, I think, honestly, a better fit, at least offensively, um, for that starting lineup. And if they want to become a more modern offense, obviously I mentioned they were fourth last year, but their offense can be kind of shut down easier than, you know, other offenses that kind of rely on more spacing the floor and shooting, more modern schemes and everything like that. Having Tolliver in there with his elite three-point shooting and the fact that he's not a complete defensive liability, I think it makes a little bit more sense in the starting lineup. I don't think it's going to happen, but if I were in charge and I was kind of making decisions, I would try and roll it out. And of course, if there's if that starting lineup you know, gets killed defensively with him on the floor, fine, you can go back to Gibson. But if they can hold their own defensively with Tolliver at power forward, I think his shooting provides a difference maker on the offensive end that Taj Gibson simply doesn't have. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, we're probably more likely to see Luol Deng now at the small ball forward <laughs> than we consider Anthony Tolliver starting. Wait, wait, wait. wait, right wait. You with, know what? Huh? If if Luol Deng gets more minutes than Anthony Tolliver, I will go to <laughs> Minnesota and riot myself. <laughs> What's sad is that it's a 50-50 shot at this point, man. Oh, my goodness. But you're right. And the sad thing is that they really do need this shooting because last year they were shooting challenge outside of, you know, Carl Lee Towns, who's your center, I might add. Um, Butler, Crawford. Crawford, Wiggins, Teague—they they weren't really reli- they weren't really that reliable. They could all shoot it, but it wasn't nowhere near reliable. And last year, Anthony Tolliver's sixty-six point three true shooting percentage was second overall in the league to one other person. Can you guess who it was? Um, whew. I know I threw that on you. I'm sorry. You it said it was sixty-six percent. Sixty-six point three true shooting. Percentage. Was it yep. Clint Capella? No. Is it a center? Sta- Is it a big man? It's not a big man. Um, I don't know. You got me. Oh, Steph Curry. Oh God, that's insane. I mean, which is crazy. Thirty. Isn't that crazy? That's a I whole other. That's a whole other thing with Steph, man. <laughs> I know exactly. And the dude, he wasn't lacking for shooting. It's not like um, we're about to talk about Portland in a little bit, but shooting a limited number of attempts, um, a la Maurice Harkless. Like the guy put up three hundred and sixty-five three pointers. Like that's a career high for him as far as putting up a tent. So shooting that staggering percentage on that. Ranking where he did in true shooting percentage on his volume. I mean, you bring it to Minnesota, you'd be foolish or, or at the very least misguided not to at least use that to diversify your offense. He will, he will move. He'll give you something, you know, and, and we'll see what Tibbs does. But like you said, it's a sneaky good signing. One year, five million, a great depth piece. But I would, I mean, not even a depth piece in that end because you really should use him. Yeah. I mean, really, he should, he should have a, 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 a carved out you know, 25 minutes per game role, either as a starter or like a six man off the bench. And and there are some interesting things that he could do um, with maybe like Derrick Rose and Tyus Jones off the bench. Um, you know, Gorgie Dan can, can space the floor, at least in the mid range if he plays. Um, you know, some of their rookies can contribute as well. So I don't like their bench depth overall. I think it's, you know, it's pretty concerning, honestly, if you look at their Seriously. depth overall. I mean, you can't really rely on Luol Deng anymore. So I'm not even counting him for a consistent rotation spot. I'm con- you know, I'll count him for like, spot minutes here or there, but I mean, they're, they could be relying on Okoji and, and Bates Diop to actually play some serious minutes. Who knows what they get from CJ Williams, who, you know, impressed last year with the Clippers on mm-hmm. how much playing time does Derek Rose get versus Tyus Jones? How much playing time does Diang get? I mean, they don't have much depth. And if they, if they suffer another injury to Jimmy Butler, um, they're going to be in, in real trouble. Um, oh, and oh, yeah. I mean, I know no we've question. been pretty pessimistic throughout this conversation. So let's <laughs> move to the over-under predictions because I actually, it might surprise I mean, you and many others would think that I'm going to go with the over because 
I think their over-under is a little bit too low. I mean, they won 47 games last year, and their over-under is 44.5. I think they'll be basically where they were last year, like 45, 46 wins, um, which, you know, it's a very slight over for me. But I think 44.5 is a little bit too low, considering the fact that they still won 46 games and Jimmy Butler missed around 20 of those, and they were actually on pace to be a top-four seed when Butler was playing. So, you know, if Butler can stay healthy... They could win even more than 47. I, I mean, I think I wouldn't pick them more for, than, you know, 48 or 49 at the most if everything breaks right for them. But, you know, if they get a healthy Butler, I see no reason why they can't win 45, 46, 47 games. And that's why I'm going with the slight over. Oh, yeah. I mean, last year, what, they, the Denver Nuggets were just out the playoffs at 46 and 36. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just give the Timberwolves the Denver Nuggets record and put them at 46 <laughs> and 36 because I do think that they are going to exceed the over-under. Some of these, especially in this division, as we're talking about, are way under what we think yeah. they should be yeah but um I, I personally don't see them making the playoffs like i said there's too much going on for me to really have confidence in them i mean especially with the the strength of surrounding teams but they are better than the over under so yeah let's give them uh, i'm gonna do 46 and 36 i'm taking over <laughs> slots in perfectly <laughs> so let's move on to the portland trailblazers um we just recapping their pretty uneventful offseason actually it might, it's actually pretty eventful in the wrong way for them but um <laughs> They added Seth Curry and Nick Stauskas, and they lost Ed Davis, Shabazz Napier, and Pat Connaughton. Um, and then in terms of re-signing, they were able to re-sign Yusuf Nurkic to a reasonable deal. I think it was four years, 44, or something like that. Or four years, 48, I believe. Um, so the storylines that I've, I've kind of identified is really, I, I just said it, I think they had a rough offseason. And I'm wondering how that's going to translate in the win column. Because what it comes down to is now they're relying on Seth Curry to stay healthy. He missed all of last year. Um, and they're, more importantly, perhaps, they're relying on Nick Stauskas to kind of soak up some wing minutes. And Zach Collins and Caleb Swanigan to actually become featured backup bigs. Um, and I think that's pretty troubling. I mean, if Curry can stay healthy, I like his fit. Um, they could do some weird three-guard lineups with him and Lillard and McCollum. Or he can just you know, be the, backcourt, the, the backup kind of offensive plug off the bench. Um, I like that if he stays healthy. If he gets hurt... They're in real trouble. Stauskas as well. I mean, he, he barely played last year because he's just not good. Um, I think Pat Connaughton is better than Stauskas, and they let him go. Um, yeah. Napier, I think, is a little bit more consistent and, and more reliable than Curry. They let him go. Ed Davis was quietly one of the best backup bigs in the league last year, and they let him go. I guess they have a lot of confidence in Zach Collins maybe step up and be a backup center. Um, but he's a young player. It's hard to rely on that when you've got your two guys – your two main guys, especially Lillard, in their prime, and they want to compete for the playoffs at this moment. Relying on young guys and guys like Stauskas and Curry is, is, could be very troubling and could spell the end of their playoff run, um, in my opinion. I, I agree completely. It's not the, the losses are a lot more impactful than any you know minor additions that they gained, although as far as their draft selection, I, I am pretty high. Well, we'll go on that in a little bit here. But with, with losing Pat Connaughton, I do think he, he was a lot more impactful than – who the, Nick Stauskas, because Nick Stauskas isn't as versatile or as athletic. I mean, there was another dimension with Pat Connaughton, even as slight as it was. Um, you have Seth Curry, which I think is a great signing. I think there were some shooting numbers that from his 2016-2017 season where he was just really good as far as volume, getting him up and, and converting. But he is coming off of a, a stress fracture in his lower left leg. Then you lose Shabazz Napier with a, a really good la- season last year, backing up Dame. And then the biggest loss, I mean, literally and figuratively, in my opinion, is Ed Davis because – you know, he was their most consistent contributor as far as rebounding rate. He had 28.8% defensive rebounding rate and then 21.3% total rebounding rate. And that was that was tops. You didn't bring another person to replace that. He was great in the locker room, as you could see by the reaction of the Trailblazers when he, when, he, when he left or was kind of shown the way out there. And they kind of downsized on that front court production. But even 
more so in general, I would have hoped for a little more firepower. I mean, and this is straight box score numbers, but we saw how decisively the Trailblazers got swept um, by the Pelicans and how they really just took players out of the game. C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard was just taken out. Lillard only shot 35% from the field in over 40 minutes a game, and he played the most minutes in the series for his team, 164 team high. And a lot of that was just trapping him to get the ball out of his hands early. He really seemed confounded by that as far as consistently being trapped, not really being able to swing it to anyone other than McCollum. And it showed in in, in the stats. But even in the regular season, you could see the shooting disparity. I mean, Damian Lillard averaged 26.9. Second was McCollum with 21.4. Then was Yusef Nurkic with 14.3. And you see the drop. There's a slight drop between Lillard and McCollum, a more bigger one between McCollum and and Nurkic. And after that, everyone is a nine points per game here, a six points per game there, you know, eight point there. And the players that are under 10 don't reliably create their own offense at all. Alfred Kaminu, um, Mo Harkless, Evan Turner. I mean, he has an inefficient mid-range shot if you want to count that. But he shot 31% from three, so I'm not really high on him on that regard. So, I mean, it's just it's a matter of losing some really productive pieces and then also not bringing them back. But another one for me, and I don't know if, if you shared this, is um, point production. In the regular season, this might work for you, but barring some significant you know, in-season improvement or off-season development, it, it seems to run the same that it ran last year as far as having McCullum and Lillard um, two players who, you know, with specific and focused defensive attention can be taken out of the game. And then you give it to a variety of players who can't really create their own offense or create for others. And that's why a lot of people have been talking about potential trade using maybe McCollum to try and get more of a wing or a big to kind of diversify their team. And maybe, you know, as you said, the trapping kind of took out the, took the backcourt away from them. And then you put the ball in hands of, you know, guys like Harkless and Turner and Aminu. And it just is a recipe for disaster come playoff time. So, you know, that's another thing I'm looking for is how far can this Lillard and McCollum duo carry them? Um, because I think that when you have them healthy, you'll always be in playoff contention. Um, but, when, you know, with their lack of, of quality depth at, at the wing and big positions, I, I think the team's ceiling is, is just straight up limited to, honestly, it could be first-round eliminations from here on out. Um, you know, obviously the summer of 2016 has just, just been so disastrous for them, and, and they're feeling the repercussions of, of these, you know, the Evan Turner contract. Um uh, Mark Harkless, you know, getting $10 million a year. Um, Myers Leonard, who doesn't even play, I think he gets $10 million a year. Like, those contracts are going to, are, might actually spell the doom of this kind of Lillard and McCollum duo, which is a shame because, you know, know. If, they had, if they had the money in this offseason or even next summer to add one more piece in the front court for this team, I, they could be like a top four team every year. But because of the summer of 2016, they're going to have no money moving forward. You know, Alan Crabb trading him away because of his big contract and, and wanting to save money on the luxury tax is pretty big because not only can he soak up minutes at the wing positions, but he's just such a quality shooter that you can put him in at small forward potentially um, and not have to rely on Harkless or Turner to kind of just shoot threes. Um, and they really won't even do it. Um, or he can play shooting guard. <laughs> right. He can do some weird stuff with Lillard and McCollum and Crabb. And I know Crabb had a down year last year, but I think he'll pick it back up again. Um, but his shooting is... is Duly missed in, in Portland, um, and just the ability for him to soak up those wing minutes as well. So, you know, if this team is struggling, if they miss the playoffs, it, it could be very likely that a trade is coming, maybe using McCollum um, to get a front court piece to kind of diversify this team and diversify their offensive attack um, moving forward. Oh, yeah, definitely. What do you think about the offseason drafting of uh, Anthony Simmons and um, Gary Trent Jr.? Because I'm, I'm not really too or Anthony Simons, wow, my fault. I'm not really, I haven't really, as you can see, put too much, done too much research on Simons, but I've definitely 
follow Gary Trent Jr. just a little bit. Obviously, the Blazers won the um, Las Vegas Summer League Championship, and I was larger on the strength of his just great shooting. He's really polished and kind of, um, I think, NBA-ready on the offensive end. Um, and, and I think having a, a shooter or I think he was um, the – the reputation of a shooter. I think it's going to translate what's the NBA, but having an extra shooter there, if he gets the minutes, and I think that he will get some at some wing, at that wing position, would will be really helpful for this team. And although it may not take the Allen, place of Allen Crab as far as you know the the efficiency and the amount of attempts, and also the fact he's a rookie, I think that is having another kind of um another source of shooting from someone who will probably actually shoot the ball. But um, what do you think about these players here that they just brought in, and what do you think they'll get significant minutes? Kind of what are your thoughts on them? I don't think Simon's is going to play. Uh, I think he's going to basically be in the G League uh, just because I think he's pretty far away from being an NBA player like on a consistent basis. Um, if they get hit by a lot of injuries, maybe he'll see some time in the NBA. Uh, but really, when it comes to Gary Trent, I think that they're going to try out you know, rolling with the back, the backup backup backcourt of Curry and Stauskas at first. And if Stauskas can't – and Wade Baldwin is there as well, and he provided some nice minutes last year as well. So he could slot in as that you know fifth guard, I guess, in the backcourt. Um, but I think that I think there are five guards, Lillard, McCollum, Curry, Stauskas, and Baldwin ahead of Gary Trent. So I'm not sure I'll, he would see playing time consistently in the NBA. Um, I think he's well, more I – mean, uh, Yeah? Oh, my fault. No, I was thinking of putting him – and maybe this was just me, but – um, almost like Will Barton at the small forward. That's because I know that guard depth wise, they're pretty packed, as well as getting minutes where McCollum and Lillard sit. And I mean that that already enough stuff. They play pretty high, but maybe just to bring in more shooting. Period. Because you have the lengthy wings in Moharkless and Alfrukamino and Evan Turner, who I'm sure are going to get minutes. But when it comes to shooting wise, I mean, yeah, there. I think the worst was Evan Turner in the low 30s. I think it was 31% from three. But you're not really getting that volume up. You're not really getting that 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 amount of shot attempts up. And as far as having a shooter, do you think that they will? You know, that he will, um, Terry Stotts resort to more unconventional lineups to just roll out as much shooting as possible, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I'm not sure if, you know, I think Terry Stotts could also be another another coach who could be coaching for his job this year. Uh, <laughs> it feels like we said that for every team so far. Yeah, um, pretty much. But, you know, maybe, I'm not sure at that point if he, if he just want to stick with his veterans or try and rely on Gary Trent. I do agree that if they need shooting and they get desperate, or if they get injuries, because another storyline I, I, I had written down was the health, because this team was very healthy last year. I mean, Harkless and Aminu both missed some time, um, but all their key players, talking about Lillard, McCollum, Nurkic, um, they all played over 72 games. And we talked about the other teams in this division that dealt with injuries. Obviously, Denver missing Millsap, OKC missing Roberson, who's extremely important for them. Um, we'll get to Utah, who missed Rudy Gobert for a good part of the season as well. So, you know, if they have a couple injuries strike them this year, then yeah, I think that Gary Trent could emerge as a player. Of course, he's going to have to hit his shots to get on the court. And if he does... He could carve out a nice rotation spot um, at the at either shooting guard or small forward if they want to go a little bit of small ball, um, or if the injury strike in the backboard, he can he can soak up some minutes there. But they do need more shooting, and if if Trent does get the opportunity to get the get on the floor and hit his shots when he has the opportunity presented to him, he could he could stick around in the rotation. I wouldn't count on it right away, and I wouldn't count on it you know for the entire season, especially if they stay healthy. But I do think it's an option that they should certainly explore, especially especially if this team is struggling throughout the season. Definitely. And, and I think one other point I'd like to add just as far as the Portland Trailblazers and the storyline for them is just the improvement of Yusef Nurkic. Um, they really got him on a pretty team-friendly four-year, $48 million deal. And he played a career high in minutes last year. Um, he had a career high in player efficiency, win shares. As far as net rating, he was third on the team behind Lillard and Aminu. I think as an offensive option, he clearly slots in as that third um, piece behind Lillard and McCollum in that order. But you know, by putting him there, by having him there, not only, I mean, as far as a big man, he's not as 
good finishing at the rim. In fact, he's below average at that end, which is kind of shocking. Um, yeah, I think he's a. Um, he's as far as taking advantage of posting up on on mismatches and switches. So that's a good thing for him. And I like having Nurkic there in theory, but by giving him, I mean, giving him that money, which is great. But now, I mean, they already were, but they're just hopelessly capped out for next offseason. So you're right. They really have no choice as far as improvement outside of players they already have. Ken Lillard go up another level. Ken McCollum, who had a bit of a, of a, of a down season last year, um, at least statistically, you know, bounce back a little bit. Ken Yusef Nurkic is still quite young at 23 going into 24 season rebound there because aside from that, there's no one else coming. I mean, aside from draft picks and everything, you're, you're just hopelessly capped out. Um, you're going to have to just go into just immediate salary dumping and cost-cutting moves if you hope to reset or reboot. And half of these players you are here for a couple of years and aren't really, I mean, players I'm selling. You know, hey, you know, step right up and take Evan Turner off my hands. You know, he's only 29 <laughs> going to 30 season. Um, inefficient shooter, needs to pound the ball to be effective, can't really do it without. I mean, you know, these players here, Portland's kind of locked themselves into it. I think they're the biggest casualty of the 2016 uh, free agency extravaganza because even contracts like Timofey Mozgov and, as we can see, Lua Deng have been moved, and yet Portland made a bunch of signings that, on the margins, uh, you know, on paper, looked good at the time. I mean, I wasn't really big on the years for any of them, but now you, you, you have no flexibility moving forward if you do have a down year, which I think will be, like you said, and just kind of stay at a first-round exit, and there's nowhere to go from here. Yeah, and I, honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't see them making the playoffs. That's, uh, I mean, I, that's what I am. That's why I am at this point with this Trailblazers team. Despite though, I'm still taking the over because their over under <laughs> is so low. It's forty one and a half. I, I mean, I know I, it's crazy, man. They, I don't know what they were as far as the Western Conference. I think they said Golden State sixty two, and the other teams fighting for scraps as far as possible wins. I don't get it. I mean, they won forty nine last year, and like I said, they were very healthy. Um, but you know, even a five win decrease has them comfortably over this over, which is a weird sentence to say. But I mean, like I said, I mean, I think the over under is too low, and I have them missing the playoffs. But I still have them winning. You know, forty two to forty three, maybe even forty four or forty five wins. Honestly, they hell they could even get to like forty six or forty seven and still miss the playoffs in the Western <laughs> Conference. But I, you're right. I would slot them in at more of like anywhere from like forty two to forty four wins. Which again, I'm still taking the over just because it's so low. I'm again. I don't know why we're in sync. I should just say disagree. They're going to get to like forty-eight, but no. <laughs> I, I think more on the forty-four. Um, like you said, they were just remarkably healthy. I think losing um, Davis and Napier as well as Connaughton, maybe in the playoffs, none of them really made a super huge impact. But at least in the regular season, I do think that will be a significant factor. So come to think of it, no, I'm gonna put them at forty-three. They're definitely going to be over forty-one. I think just on the strength of Lillard and McCollum. Um, as well as Nurkic and just the play there. But, um, yeah, I think these, these losses are going to mean a lot more than we already take them to mean, and we already aren't taking them for granted as far as what they do to the locker room, what they do statistically, and, and just surviving in this loaded Western Conference. Exactly. So um, let's move on to the final team in this Northwest division, the Utah Jazz. Their offseason was very quiet. They re-signed Derek Favors and Dante Exum, and they drafted Grayson Allen in the first round. Um, some key storylines. I think, one, I mentioned it before a little bit, but can they stay healthy? And it's really talking about Rudy Gobert. Uh, because, I, I mean, obviously Defensive Player of the Year candidate every year pretty much. Um, and as expected, as, as one would expect, the defense was really good with him on the floor. It was 8.8 .8 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. And he only played 56 games last year. If you can get like 70 games out of Rudy Gobert, I think that honestly adds like three to four, maybe even five wins just because of how good he can be on the defensive end. And as well, his, his kind of gravity as a role man in the pick and roll, especially providing a, an alley-oop threat or offensive rebound putback threat. 
um, on the offensive end, you know, for guys like Mitchell and and, and uh, Ricky Rubio. So his impact, his ability to stay on the floor, and his impact to, you know, everyone talks about Gobert's defense, but his, offensively, you know, not having him there, it, it changes, you know, how they can play offensively and how teams have to guard them offensively. So if you can get like 70 games out of Rudy Gobert, which is hit or miss, you know, he's missed, he's had injuries in the prior in prior seasons. Um, but if you get a, a quote-unquote full season from Gobert, which is probably like 70, 75 games, this team, can, just just by that factor alone, will jump up a little bit. But obviously there are other aspects of this team, like Donovan Mitchell. How good is he going to be in year two? That could also impact this team moving forward because Mitchell was obviously really good last year. He had an 8.5 net rating. The offense was basically five points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor, and the defense was 3.6 points per 100 possessions better. So he was very good on both ends of the floor. Obviously, the traditional stat line, 20.5 points, 3.7 rebounds, 3.7 assists per game last year on an incredible 29.1 usage percentage. Um, really, the questions are, does he handle more playmaking duties and get, get that assists up and kind of create more for others? Um, or maybe Ricky Rubio you know, still handles that and he's still more of a secondary playmaker. I think that's an area where Mitchell can grow and take another step as the fi- primary focal point of an offense is, is more playmaking duties. Um, but really also the, the three-point shooting. He only shot 34% last year. So if that could jump up to 36 37% on the same number of attempts, that'd also be huge for the team's offense and his ability as well to play off the ball as a shooter. And then when he's on the ball, obviously, you know, just being able to knock down shots at a consistent rate will be huge. So those are two questions about his game. Um, but really, how good is Mitchell in year two, and can Rudy Gobert stay healthy? I think are the two defining storylines for a team that's pretty much bringing back the exact same roster. I was going to say a third little point here is how big is continuity for them because yeah. you know Utah had the option to clear up a bunch of little of space with um, letting go of Cephalosha, Epke Udo, and Jarebko um, before the guarantee dates, and then just you know walking away from favorites and Exum. Literally everyone on this team except for Jarebko, who is with Golden State is back with Utah. So as far as having them back, having the schemes already in mind, they already know how to play, they already know the, the, the way that they play, that's that's coming in. There's no drop-off in that way. So we are really relying on internal development. And I do think if I was Quinn Snyder, I would focus more on on Donovan Mitchell being more of the primary um, ball handler and kind of creating his own offense. I understand that kind of limits Ricky Rubio in that state, but he's the only one reliably on this team that I'm looking up and down the roster, except maybe Joe Ingles. No, I'm not even giving him that that can create his own offense. Um, I mean, you can look at the scoring there. If you looked at, and this is just straight, I guess I'm just box scoring numbers here, but um, statistically, number one was Donovan Mitchell at 20, and then if you don't even count the 39 games that Rodney Hood played for Utah, that uh, he averaged 16.8 points per game. After that, Rudy Gobert had 13.5, Ricky Rubio 13.1, Derek Favors 12. It's really well spread out as far as you have uh, five to six players in double-figure scoring. But Donovan Mitchell's clearly the alpha. But if he can create more for others as well as getting his own shot, as you already said, focusing more on um, lifting up that three-point percentage, he really shot even 50% on twos, which is great. He gets, he leads in shot attempts. Working on that, I think, will really help them. Um, and then you're right. If Rudy Gobert is healthy even a little bit more, they could have made a lot more noise there. And defensively, this team is a monster. I mean, Quinn Snyder gets them in all the right places. You have a lot of um, just dogged defenders. I think the addition of Jay Crowder, even though he's an inefficient shooter, helps him on the defensive end. He's, I think, was overrated as a defender from Boston. You could really cle- clearly see why in Cleveland. But in Utah, with the right scheme, I think he shines as a defender. So having him and Ingles there um, – Donovan Mitchell played really well. Ricky Rubin and Rudy Gobert just swallowing up shots. Derek Favors. Um, and you have your annoyances with uh, 
Joe Ingles, and and you sign Grayson Allen. Jeez Louise. I mean, this team is going to be kind of a nasty kind of dirty team there. But I do think that they have the potential to be, what, top three in the West, top four? Yeah, for sure. Um, and a couple other storylines that I've identified is Dante Exum as well. Obviously, they rewarded him oh, yeah. with a nice contract. It was like $11 million per year for three years. And really, I think it's basically that contract is basically because of the defense the defensive abilities that he shows, or he has shown in his career, but especially in the playoffs. I mean, they had a couple games against the Rockets where he was locking down James Harden. He can switch. He's He's got big size to guard multiple positions. Um, he can handle the ball offensively. Uh, I think that his size and ability to get to the rim are kind of unique for him and, and his play style. I um, mean, if you surround him with enough shooters, you will you know, still have a solid offense despite his limited shooting himself. Um, so... Can he stay healthy? Because obviously the injuries have been so have been just derailing his career so far. And really, can he contribute? And, and more importantly, can he lead the bench units? And maybe they do some interesting staggering with him and Mitchell, him and Rubio. But they've got other guys like Alec Burks, Royce O'Neal, Jay Crowder coming off the bench. What can they do with those bench role players? And if they stagger them with their starters or if they keep them more as a bench unit, how can Exum lead them on both ends of the floor? Something that I'm looking forward to watching. And maybe as a team overall, how can their offense improve? Um, and really, does it have to? Because last year they had the second-ranked defense, um, but just the 15th-ranked offense. And, you know, it's kind of a reverse of the Nuggets and the 16-17 Rockets, in which case those teams used top three offenses or top five offenses and, you know, mediocre defenses to win 50-plus games. But this Jazz team projects to use a top three defense and an average offense to win 50-plus games. But, you know, do they play more favors at center to get more of a modern offense and more floor spacing on the court? That's a possibility as well. Um, maybe they just, maybe they kind of carve out uh, Ekpe Udo from the rotation and just use Derek Favors as the backup center when Jay Crowder comes in. Um, that's a that's a possibility as well. They were 13th in three pointers attempted per game, which is probably better than most people would expect, and they were 12th in percentage. Uh, they hit 36.6% of their three pointers as a team, both solid above average numbers. So it's not really the shooting like the Timberwolves that's really holding them back. I think it's more of the the, the doing the the dual bigs, the dual traditional bigs for so much of their playing time, having Favors and Gobert together. It, it works for them, obviously, because they won 48 last year, and they project, and I expect them to win more than 50 this year. But if they want to improve their offense a little bit, I think having a little bit more of a modern, more modern lineups as Favors at center or even just adding more shooters around Gobert um, would be a key way to do that moving forward. Obviously, another development from Donovan Mitchell, more development and consistency from Dante Exum as well would help. Alec Burks is the same way as well. Better shooting from Jay Crowder. There, there are ways for them to improve. I'm not saying they have to improve in order to them, for them to be a top three, top four team, because I think they'll do that regardless because how good their defense is and, and their offense is at least average. But there are paths for them to improve offensively. So I want to see if they, if they you know, implement some of those strategies or if they just continue doing what's been working for them so far. Oh, yeah. I think I'm a little more, I guess, apprehensive on their offensive ceiling and whether or not that's really important as far as generating good shots, especially come playoff time against the Rockets, against the Warriors, who you're really going to still have to get over to get to, you know, make some real headway in the Western Conference um, playoff series. But, yeah, they're, they're already a solid team without. I mean, defensively, you already mentioned it. You know, when you're playing um, the Rockets and Warriors, again, teams that kind of force you to switch or or pay dearly with the consequences there, um, then you have to adjust. So that's something that the Jazz will have to think about as well as, well as um, just, like I said, just really diversifying, I would say, not even at first find their offense, but having more development from – Donovan Mitchell and maybe one other person. I know Rudy Gobert is pretty good at finishing. Well, he's kind of under 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 average at finishing around the rim. But just just being, I, I think they need another secondary player to kind of 
just score a little bit more. That's just my own personal opinion. But come on, the way they played this year with the with the strong finish they had and where they stand going into the season, these are these are like borderline contender problems at this point for them. You know, like like this isn't like earth shattering play. Oh, you, you just you, get some, huh? Yeah, this is nitpicking, really. That's, exactly. Yeah, that's what you do when you got contenders here. <laughs> exactly. And you can see, come staring my way through, trying to find a, a weakness here. But if they really just get, like you said. The first two storylines, improvement from Mitchell and, let's say, 10 more games from Rudy Gobert. Bam. Th- then you just roll the ball out and see what happens. And and that's pretty good for this Utah team and really shows how well they've developed the players they've had and have made very prudent signings and, and, and moves to fill in the margins here. Yeah, just just a lot of credit to to um, Quinn Snyder in the in the front office as well. Just finding these role players like Royce O'Neal, trading for a guy like Jay Crowder when his value is a little bit lower – Drafting a Dante Exum, a very unique player at the guard position. Uh, obviously, Mitchell at pick 13 is a huge hit for them. Joe Ingles has developed into a very capable, um, above-average small forward who can kind of play small ball power forward. He can, he can pass and play make for others. He can score. He can obviously shoot the three above 40% every year. So um, just a lot of credit for them adding Ricky Rubio last year um, to this front office and this coaching staff that has done really well to develop the players that they've had internally, and they've slotted other pieces that they've acquired through trade or signing around them perfectly to get this team that has a lot of potential this season, but also moving forward as most of their key guys are still pretty young. Um, for this season, uh, their over-under is 49.5, which, which sounds about right compared to the other ones that have been extremely low. And I'm going over. I, I've gone over for every team so far in this division, <laughs> mainly because they've been so low. But for this Jazz team, it's mainly because of the continuity and just hopefully getting more Gobert and development from Mitchell and more of uh, Dante Exum and development from him as well. They won 48 games last year. I think they could jump to 52. I think if things break well for them, they could be in the 54 to 56 range in terms of wins. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely putting them a little higher. I'm going to go just a little under what you said. I'm going to give them 53. Um, just because, like I said, I'm banking on on improved health from Rudy Gobert. I think that's the key swinger here in determining, you know, where they go. But they're definitely going to go higher than the over-under, most assuredly. The continuity is a big deal. Um, having a really good coach in Quinn Snyder and any improvement, which you know you'll get from Donovan Mitchell again. Yeah, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. It's going to be a, a good season for Utah Jazz fans. I'm sure they're excited. Absolutely. So that will wrap up. The Northwest Division preview here on the 94 Feet Report NBA podcast. Of course, if you missed the Atlantic Division preview, we did the same style um, uh, on that division. You can check that out. That was up last week. This will go up tomorrow on Tuesday, September 11th. Um, and we will continue with our division preview. We'll probably jump back to the Eastern Conference um, for the next episode. So definitely follow us on Twitter um, at Eric Spiros MBA, of course, at the 94 Feet Report. If you're going to get updates for both the website and this podcast specifically, of course, Corbin, you can tell everyone where they can find you. Oh, at Corbin Ford MBA and uh, okay, on the handle of at 94 Feet Report. Season's rolling in. We got some big news coming. Um, just follow me, man. We're going to get some stuff rolling. I'm excited for this. Definitely. We've got big stuff coming for the site. Obviously, we're continuing with the division preview series, so follow us for that and updates on that as well. Um, but, yeah, we will see you guys on the next division preview. Take care. All right, y'all.